Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And as he was on his way, uh, he didn't take the most direct route. Um, if you look at where he was and where Jerusalem was, I mean, he was way off course. Maybe Jesus stalled. He knew that he was going to Jerusalem to ultimately face his death. So maybe he stalled, not out of fear, not trying to put it off, but maybe he knew it wasn't the right time. Maybe he went a different route because he knew he had some unfinished business to take care of. No matter what the reason, Jesus and his disciples found themselves approaching a village between Samaria and Galilee. This village would have put them in close proximity to both Jews and Samaritans. Probably in the area there were both Jews and Samaritans working, living close proximity, raising their families. But the likelihood of those two people groups interacting is very slim. As Christ is about to enter into this border village, from afar, ten leprous men called out to him. They were disease-ridden, they were suffering, and they were ostracized from the community they probably once were a part of. They were banned from entering the village and left to fend for themselves simply because they contracted a disease. And over the years, I've read this passage numerous times, but, but over the last 10 years, things, my perspective on it, have begun to change. Instead of seeing just random 10 men in this story, as I envision it, as I try to put myself in it, the faces of the 10 men quickly become faces of homeless friends that I've gotten to know over the years. And while the, uh, the stereotypical homeless person is, you know, a, an older man, disheveled appearance, holding a sign either on a street corner or an interstate on-ramp, what I found is that's not the typical homeless person. Over the last 10 years, I've gotten to know many, and many have become friends of mine. The average homeless person that I know is generally working really hard just to survive. They value and are a part of community, and they care deeply about their friends. But just like these 10 lepers, because of their circumstance, their appearance, their socioeconomic status, because they don't have a roof to sleep under at night, they are often put to the side. And they have to find people that are like them to find community. We know that at least one of these 10 lepers was a Samaritan. We often assume, and most scholars seem to indicate that the likelihood of the other nine being Jews was extremely high. So we see this kind of weird dynamic of where this lone Samaritan and these nine Jewish individuals find community and commonality 
in their suffering. Their disease brought them together. They came from different races, different cultures, probably had completely different life experiences. But because of their condition, they remained together. They called out saying, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And it's interesting that they called Jesus out by name. They were suffering. They were ostracized. They lived in isolation and bondage. But still, they knew who Jesus was. And they knew at least three things about him. They knew his name. They knew what he looked like. And they knew that he was more than capable of offering them something. And we don't know the full extent of how much they knew about Jesus. Maybe they had heard the story of Jesus healing the the single leprous man simply by putting his hand on him and saying, be healed. Maybe they heard the story of the woman who was hemorrhaging, the woman who reached out and grabbed the garment, the robe of Jesus. And through that, through the faith that she displayed, was healed. Maybe they heard about the blind man who who Jesus spit down in some dirt and made some mud and then rubbed it all over his eyes and regained his sight. Maybe they heard about the man who was deaf and mute and Jesus walked up to him and put his hands on his ears and then spit on his finger and stuck it on his tongue. Maybe these guys were just as uncomfortable with how much Jesus used his spit to perform miracles as I am. Whatever the case, they knew about Jesus. They simply asked Jesus for pity. But Jesus gave them a miracle. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. And this wasn't just a physical healing that Christ offered them. This was something that gave them a new lease on life. Their disease, again, caused them to be outsiders. There were laws set in place if you were sick or you were leprous that prevented you from being a part of the general public. These men would have had their, their families ripped away from them. These men would have not been able to work. They would have had to beg every day just to survive with each person that came by saying, please just have some pity on me. This is the equivalent of a homeless person coming up to you in a metro area saying, you have some change you could spare. This is all they wanted from Jesus. Everything was stripped of them, even their dignity. And all they wanted from Jesus was their pity. But Jesus didn't offer them pity. He offered them something that fundamentally shifted their identity. He gave them a new life. 
Every Tuesday morning, um, I meet with two other pastors here at College Wesleyan Church, and we go over what we call help request forms. They're forms that sit in the front office, and on any given day throughout the week, individuals from our community oftentimes come in, fill out these forms. And, and, and these individuals are generally, they have found themselves in some type of, of crisis. Uh, sometimes it's someone who is behind on their electric bill, and they come in asking for help. Sometimes it's a single mother who, who, whose electricity has already been shut off, and she's saying, hey, I have kids. Can you help me get my power back on? Sometimes it's people who come in, and they're, they're asking for, you know, hey, I've got to get a doctor's appointment down in Indy. Can you help me with gas? Other times it's people want food. Um, we've had people say, hey, I've got to get to work, but I'm behind on my car payment. Can you help me pay this? We even had college kids who have come in and said, hey, I'm behind on my tuition. The only way I'm going to be able to stay in school is if I get a little bit of help. There are people from our community who come to us for help, and each request we receive is as different as the person who comes in to fill out the application. This notebook right here contains all of the help request forms that have come in in the last two years, the two years that I've been here. There are hundreds of people who have come in to ask for help. The majority of the people who come in are from the community. There's a handful that have been within the church, but again, a majority of the people come to the church and they're from the community. Just like the, uh, the ten lepers knew about Jesus, these people who come in, they know about us. They know what our name is. They know what we look like. And they know what we are capable of. But up until this point, more often than not, if we offer them anything, it has simply been our pity. And sure, from time to time, you know, we're helping individuals um, with the benevolence offering that comes up every fifth Sunday in an amazing way. We're keeping people in their homes. Um, we're keeping lights on. We're helping parents. And, and yes, we are called to feed the hungry, to provide drink to the thirsty, to give shelter to the homeless, to clothe the naked, to visit the sick and the imprisoned. More often than not, the way we go about it is still just pity. As a collective of Christ followers, we are the body of Christ. We are his presence here on earth today. Jesus, when asked, didn't give them pity. And if we're the body of Christ, when the community comes to us and they're asking for help, we're not called to give them pity. We're to respond just like Christ did and offer them the miraculous. Pity cannot transform lives. Only the miraculous can. 
Many of you have, uh, have walked by it. Uh, some of you have read about it in the bulletin. Some of you never even heard of this. But there outside of the uh, worship arts office, there's a canvas hanging on the wall. And at the start of this series, we asked individuals to, to write or draw something, a, a miracle that Jesus had either done in their life or write or draw about a miracle they were wanting Jesus to do in their life. And almost from the day it was put up there, one person wrote this down. They wrote, healing in marriage. And that's all it said. And the miracle that they wanted to see was healing in marriage. And as I saw that, I was encouraged um, as the outreach pastor. There's someone in our church, and I don't know who they are, that is praying for that. That is asking God for that. That is desiring to see that. Almost every day I, I, I pick up the uh, Chronicles of Doom in the front office of the church, and I read through it. It's not unusual for me to read about an overdose that's taken place in a bathroom in one of our stores here in the community. It's not uncommon to hear about a shooting. It's not uncommon to hear about a home invasion experience or a domestic abuse situation. It's not uncommon to read about Grant County's growing poverty rates. And we all know the statistics that show that Grant County is, in fact, one of the poorest counties in the state of Indiana. And, and we said it from the, this platform. Child poverty is number one in Grant County. We are higher than every other county in the state. We all aware that we have a growing unemployment rate. And if one were to look beneath the surface, you can see that the racial divide is growing further and further, both in our community and in our churches. Doing a little digging this week, discovered that more people in Grant County don't claim any faith than there are those who claim to be Christian. Easy to see that our community needs healing. But it's not going to come from our pity. It won't come from simply trying to throw money at the community either. Another study uh, in 2012 on philanthropy.com released a study about giving trends across the country. And it allowed individuals to go in and search by state and, again, even narrowing it down even more, by county. I was looking at it this week. While we are one of the poorest communities in the state of Indiana, we are also one of the most generous. 4.63% is the average that a person in our county gives to either churches or nonprofits. And we can say 4.63%, that's really low. But the reality is, is it places us at fourth most generous county in the state. We are well above some of the more wealthy counties 
in our community. And there's a lot of great organizations in Grant County, and we as a church get to partner with a handful of them. They are doing great things, and they are investing in the lives of the people of our town and county. But healing in our county isn't going to come from them. Because if it were, the 100-plus organizations that are doing great works in our community would already have made it a reality. It's not going to come from pity. To heal Marion, God is going to have to do the miraculous. And I am convinced that he desires to do this through local churches. And not just College Wesleyan Church. I believe that it is going to mean that we as a church have to collaborate with every other church in our community, working with a unified idea for a common goal. And as we strive to collaborate, we are going to have to make some changes within College Church. Recently, I was reading a, through a book titled The Church of Irresistible Influence, Bridge-Building Stories to Help You Reach Your Community. And the book was a, a little bit different than what I normally like to read. By the title alone, I should have guessed this, but it included a lot of stories about actual bridges. I skipped over most of those, but one line did stick with me. The author, Robert Lewis, wrote, A need-meeting church can unknowingly come to exist for nothing bigger than itself. Let me read it one more time. A need-meeting church can unknowingly come to exist for nothing bigger than itself. In light of the healing of the ten lepers, maybe it could read like this. A church that only offers pity can easily lose relevance to anyone but themselves. Meeting needs and offering relief, whether it be economic, educational, relational, or even spiritual, aren't bad things in and of themselves. Though if meeting needs and offering relief aren't followed up by development that produces intentional transformation, all we are going to do is create a system of dependency where people come back to us, and again, whether it's economic, educational, relational, or spiritual, constantly saying, can I have just a little bit more? Can you offer me a little bit more pity? Can you just do a little bit more? And I've seen this with our benevolent ministry, and I've seen it with other ministries within our church, and I've seen it in our community. We can't continue just offering pity. Also, need meeting and relief ministries at times can harm the individuals and communities that they intend to serve. We see a, a need, something that we assume is a need. We react in pity, and in doing so, harm individuals and oftentimes communities. Steve Corbett and Bryant Fickert, the uh, authors of the book, When Helping Hurts, write, one of the biggest problems in many poverty alleviation efforts is that their design and implementation exacerbates the poverty of the economically rich, their God complexes, and the poverty of being the economically poor, 
their feelings of inferiority and shame. The way that we act towards the economically poor often communicates, albeit unintentionally, that we are superior and they are inferior. Share a story with you. Some of you have heard this. I've shared it a couple times before here at the church. Hopefully this time a little bit better. Um, before coming here to Marion, my office, instead of looking on the, to the beautiful campus of Indiana Wesleyan, overlooked a corner um, of the intersection 12th and Chicane. 12th and Chicane was the epicenter of poverty and addiction in East Austin. One day I, I walked out of my office, down the steps, out onto the sidewalk, and I looked across the street, and there was a young man who, who I'd gotten to know through, through some of our youth programming. Um, he was, happened to be the first person in his family to go to college. He, the year before, upon graduating high school, received an award, um, a scholarship to the University of Texas. And while the scholarship covered his tuition and his books, it wasn't, allow, it wasn't enough to allow him to, to live on campus. So every day, he would commute either by walking or by bike the one mile that was the distance between his neighborhood and the campus of UT. He was coming up, and I hadn't talked to him in a while, and so I decided to wait on the other side of the road for the signal to change for him to allow him to walk across. And right as he took a step off the corner, a white lady in a red convertible pulled up to the light. She honked her horn, waved him over, and he didn't know what was going on, so he walked over. In the passenger seat, this lady had a to-go box of food sitting there, and she had slapped a $5 bill on top, and she reaches there and hands it to him and smiles and says, you know, God bless you. And he's kind of dumbfounded at this. And so he walks behind the car. The light turns green. The lady, still smiling, speeds off. He gets to me, and right as he approaches me, he looks up because the only reason this woman gave me this food is I'm on this corner and I'm black. He throws the food down along with the $5 bill attached. A guy on the other side of the intersection, someone who I knew was struggling with addiction, ran across the street, grabbed the food, because he hadn't eaten in a few days. He picks it up, sees the $5 bill on top, smiles, rips the $5 bill off, throws the food down, runs around the corner to presumably buy drugs. The only person that benefited from that transaction was the woman in the red convertible. In her act of pity, she offended a young man and harmed an addict. She thought she was doing the work of God. The only person that she served along the way was herself. If we're going to be a part of God's miraculous work here in Marion and in our community, we're probably going to have to change some of the way we view others. Oftentimes when we think about serving, we look at people, our neighbors, as projects that need to be fixed instead of people made in the image of God. As I look around this room, 
I'm guessing that most of you are aware of our partnership at Francis Slocum Elementary. And for those that know of it, I'm sure all of you are grateful for that partnership. A little over a week ago, uh, Vicki, Amy, and myself went over to Francis Slocum and we met with uh, Dr. Or Mr. Brad Lindsay, um, Marion Community School Superintendent, and, and Dr. Levert, um, the new principal there at Francis Slocum. And we walked away from the meeting just really encouraged, um, excited about the future of the partnership, grateful that she said, hey, I want to make some changes, and grateful that she allowed us to say, we want to make some changes too. We walked out of there encouraged um, of moving forward. And, and Francis Slocum is a phenomenal school. Great teachers, amazing students, great staff, amazing things that happen there and amazing things that happen in the partnership. But as I've reflected on this passage and this sermon, I began to wonder if sending mentors in, sending teacher appreciation gifts in, even offering prayer on Tuesday mornings, is that enough? I believe that if we are truly called to minister at Francis Slocum, if we feel a conviction as a church that this is a school that we should be investing in, more of our families here at College Wesleyan should be willing to send their kids there. A good friend of mine and a fellow Wesleyan pastor in South Carolina, uh, Pastor Emily Vanilla. Uh, in a, Emily Miller, excuse me, um, once said in a podcast, when I read Jesus' command to love my neighbor as myself, I also hear him telling me to love my neighbor's kids as much as I love my own. And I'm convinced that she is in fact right. We have to begin loving the children at Francis Slocum just as much as we love the kids that are at the Slocum. We think about uh, Pastor Sia's work there at the VIP show club and in the community. We value what she's done. But if we value the people that she is ministering to all along, we should have been coming alongside of her, discipling and caring for the women and individuals in the community that she was working with. feel as if we lean on Pastor Sia over these last four years to be our evangelist to the community. We said, we've got Pastor Sia. We don't need to share the gospel ourselves. And I get that it is messy, it's hard, it's, it's overwhelming, it's time-consuming, but if we are going to see the miraculous happen in our community, all of us, we're going to have to do our part. Evangelism and discipleship should not be left up to the outreach department. It shouldn't be left up to the staff at College Church. It is something that all of us are capable of doing, and it is something that we are all called to do. None of us get off the hook with that one. Since we brought up the idea of launching interconnection, how many of you have actively pursued getting to know the immigrants in our community? 
as we are waiting from the federal government to become a recognized site to offer legal care to immigrants in our community, one of the things that we should be doing is inviting the immigrants that are in our community, that have come from other countries into our house to share meals and to share conversation. They asked for pity, but Jesus gave them a miracle. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus wrapped up this miracle, telling this Samaritan man, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Jesus offered the miraculous to all ten men. But only one came back and was made whole or well on that day. And he was the one that was least expected to do so. If we as a church become the miraculous to our community, we might only see 10% come to know Christ and be made whole. But even so, one out of 10, it is worth it. When we, the greater church here in Marion, become the miracle Marion needs, we will see the miraculous happen. College Church, we are a part of the body of Christ. And offering the community just our pity is not enough. We have to offer the miraculous. God wants to use us to transform all of our community. What's keeping that from happening is not our community, it's not God. I believe it's us. We have to start believing that God can do miraculous things through us, and we have to allow him to begin doing it today. We can't keep offering pity. I'll be honest, um, this week, as I was working on this, I became convinced that we are at a place where we as a church need to repent. We need to ask forgiveness of both God and our community. Because too often, instead of offering the miraculous, we have only offered our neighbors pity. And that is not enough. We have to begin making changes in what we do and the way we think. Again, the women, the lives that Pastor Sia has impacted, we have to come alongside those people. The families at Slocum, we have to say, I want my kids to go there. With, our, with the poor, we can't say we value the poor in our community when all we are willing to do is offer them a sack lunch. We have to offer them our friendship. We can't say that we care about immigrants if we're unwilling to get to know the ones that God has brought here. We have to offer them the miraculous because pity 
just not going to cut it anymore. Pity does not transform lives. Miracles do. A few weeks ago, I sat with uh, Pastor Steve and, and Pastor Emily, and we talked about what a transformed community could look like. What healing would look like in 10 years if God used the church in a miraculous way. And we kept, uh, we started a running list of what we desire our community to become. These are some of what we imagine our community could look like. Families are together. All families are cared for, empowered, and have the support that they need. Marriage is once again a priority, and regardless, all parents have the opportunity to invest in their child's life. There is a sense of community. Everyone loves the place they live, and everyone loves and values their neighbors. Our schools are the pride of Indiana. People want into our schools. And students, families, teachers, staff, and administrators have everything that they need to thrive. We are a community of second and third chances. People, no matter what mistakes they might have made or what circumstances they might have inherited, have opportunities to lift themselves out of injustice, poverty, and addiction. Our community is both worked in and lived in. People that work here also live here. The community is undeniably influenced and invested by the local church. Every church in our community sees their neighborhood as their responsibility. Fighting for the success of its residents, economically, educationally, and spiritually. And then there's an opportunity for all of our community's residents to be discipled well. While not all will initially desire to be discipled, there will be someone capable of discipling them well when God begins to work in their life.